0: hello and welcome to two weeks in a row of the Silmarillion film project that's the special treat that you get when we skip a week so yes for those of you who weren't paying attention we're we are coming to you with only a week gap since the last episode um, uh, although this puts us back on schedule I think it does yeah I am your yeah. here- Yes, exactly. That and and tonight we're starting like earlier than usual. So this, this this is like a special night where everything, the stars are aligned and my kids are like sleep early. <laughs> earlier than usual. We're twenty yeah, minutes. Yeah. The stars exactly. have aligned. Get
1: less late than usual. That's the point. Yeah. yeah exactly. Usual,
0: yes. yes. So uh, this is a very that means this is a very special episode. Very the stars have aligned. <laughs> and I think things this is just gonna be an awesome discussion. All the, the portents are positive absolutely so i am your co-host dave kale broadcasting to you from uh extremely hot los angeles live
1: from atop the
0: tower oh sorry Uh, (laughs) no i i'm I'm in the i'm in the makeshift uh covid work from home office (laughs) (laughs) um so uh and i am joined as always by Corey olson the tolkien professor and trish lambert the Tolkien maven thankfully unmuted now that's thankfully unmuted well i don't know Thankfully. Right. We'll have to decide later. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, looking forward to uh, uh, digging into the elves a little bit more. Of course, we were talking, we talked about um, uh, uh, we talked about Aignor a bit last week uh, in uh, developing the idea of his relationship with Aravel so that was really good. Looking forward to expanding that. We're going to spend the bulk of our time here tonight uh, with the house of finarfin uh, as we there they're, they're going to be really sort of front and center there uh for um, for the elves they're going to be i mean i really think they're going to be our primary elves um this uh this year this season um the house of finarfin uh so we will uh we will see. And of course, and hopefully we're going to get to Mithros as well. Our ambition is to get through the Sons of Finarfin, uh talk about Fingolfin and Mythros as well. So that is our ambitious program for tonight, uh, and we will see how we do. Uh, first off, let's just start with a couple announcements. One major, super important announcement, and that is Mythmoot. Mythmoot is coming up a week from this very moment. We will be mooting uh, together uh, online. Uh, we are, of course, doing a totally remote MythMoot this year, and it's going to be awesome. Uh, the thing I would want to emphasize about this, the Moot takes place between the 6th and the 9th, um, and I just want to make sure that everybody understands about the two different levels of enrollment uh, for MythMoot. We have MootCast and we have Moot Hub. and the difference between the two uh, is essentially, one is... Better if you can't make the synchronous sessions. If you are, you know, you might be able to pop in and out and see a thing or two, but you mostly, you know, you, you're, you're, you're mostly going to probably be wanting to access recordings after the fact of our presentations and keynotes and sessions and things, Mootcast is the way for you. If, if you know August 6th to 9th, you're not going to really be able to sit down and get involved in a lot of live things as they're unfolding. Um, then probably MootCast is the best uh, uh, the best registration level for you. But if you can be involved uh, during those days, MootHub gives you everything that MootCast does, which is, of course, access to all of our uh, paper sessions and our keynote sessions uh, and access to our archive recordings of all of those things after the fact. But there is also an entire other level of... Uh, fun, synchronous, informal, more social activities, plus extra sessions that Moot Hub people won't get, things like uh, a live Q&A session with our keynote speakers, so if you want to like hang out and chat with and ask questions of Verland Flieger after her talk, in addition to attending her talk and hearing it, you'll be able to do that. Um, uh, it's gonna be, you know, we have, a uh, whole big, like, social threads and things planned. Um, uh, there's gonna be our, like, our pub trivia, we're still doing that, and our costume, uh, contest and all that. Um, so, all these things are going to be part of Mood Hub. Our goal, of course, is to try to preserve the Myth Mood experience that we've all loved so much, those days when, you know, we sort of step aside from the rest of the world and kind of come together and, and uh, enjoy those four days of community and connection and uh, getting to catch up with old friends and, and to, to meet new people and, uh, you know, sit down and, you know, have dinner with Amy Sturgis and Verlin Flieger at your table and stuff like that. Those are really fun kinds of opportunities uh, that happen at MythMood every year. And we didn't want to lose that with uh, going fully, uh, digital this year. Um, so that's what Moot Hub is. So Moot Hub, and all of those extra things are not going to be recorded. So, like, if you miss it, you miss it. It's an event. Like, this is not, uh, uh, this is not uh, you know, this is not. Uh, you know, this is not a correspondence course. This is a, this is a live event. Uh, but so we hope people will be able to take part in that. I am really excited about MootHub. Uh, and uh, but of course, as I say, if you can't make it for the live sessions, if you know if you're busy during the days of uh, you know August six through nine, um, then by all means sign up for Mootcast. You'll still get access to all of the uh, to the recordings of all of the sessions, even the ones that all happen at the same time. So you don't have to pick. Um, so that's uh, that's pretty cool. Anyway, so that is what is happening. Um, uh, That is what is happening. It's the biggest event that is coming up soonest. That will be happening, as I say, a week from today. Uh, We have other things that are happening, of course. We have a a series of Signum Symposia, which are happening on a regular basis. The one that's coming up very soon, tomorrow. In fact, tomorrow evening uh, is our Hugo Award Roundtable discussion, where we're talking about the Hugo Awards uh, nominees and winners uh, from this year. Um... Lots of really fun events like that that we do fairly regularly. Feel free to join us uh, for that. Uh, and of course, registration for our fall classes is open. We're just under a month away from the start of a new semester and a new academic year. Um, wonderful response to our courses so far. Uh, uh, we've already got a really uh, excellent uh, enrollment. In fact, a month out, we're already uh, ahead of where we projected we'd be at the end. So we're, we're doing really, really well. Um, Uh, Come and join lots of really wonderful, fun people for discussions and courses, uh, either to take courses for credit or to uh, audit our courses. Um, Lots of opportunities there. So any of these things, go to signumuniversity.org and you can find links from the homepage for any one of these things. All right. Let us get back to the Elf storylines. So now... I have a, a kind of a sinking feeling that I didn't totally finish the Ignor and Andreth discussion last week. Um, I, I know I don't want to leave that out entirely. I know we got up to talking about Angrod and Ignor a little bit and their relationship with each other. I know we're going to come back to that. But I wanted to make 100% sure that I wasn't supposed to remember to come back to finish up um, discussion that we were just ending with last time. If I, if I promised at the end of last session that we would come back and discuss something at the beginning, I should totally do that, but I can't remember, uh, what we were talking about as usual, even one week ago is like way too far back for me to remember. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, okay. So we can, um, we'll, uh, we will do, we'll do what we can do here, uh, and see what we have. So, uh, but... Big picture, we need to be looking at the war with Angband. That's what the... So the elves are doing two things, right? Big picture, um, the major plot line of season five, as far as the elves are concerned, involves their integration with the men, which we've been discussing already from the human point of view. And of course, the war with Angband. This is uh, the end uh, of the long siege of Angband. Um, So... Having talked to, So, having talked about the relationship with the men some, though, of course, we need to come back and hit on this as we uh, discuss some of the Elves in particular, and their different perspectives on this, um, let's talk about this war with Angband, because this presents a few issues. One really big one, which I'm going to confess to you right up front, I don't know how to handle this. Um, it doesn't often happen that there are sometimes when I want to make a change from the way that the story is told in the Silmarillion because of like because of the nature of the adaptation, right? Like if if uh, you know wanting to compress things and and uh, uh, because we have to you know sort of conserve our characters and stuff, there are lots of reasons like that. Very rarely have we come across anything in the Silmarillion where I'm like, yeah, I just want to change that because that doesn't make sense. Like, there, are, there have been one or two, but there have not been very many. And I find myself confronted with one of those things uh, today. And I'd be happy to learn otherwise. I would be absolutely delighted if anyone could explain to me uh, why we should, why the version that's in the Silmarillion is, makes sense, is good. Um, but I, I just, I'm not seeing it. So, okay. But, and it has to do with the war with Angband. So the siege, of course, as our notes say, has been going well. There have been issues, right? Glaurung's incursion at the end of last season was a major issue and a major presage of things to come, right? Um, to know not only that, you know, it's possible for, uh, uh, for the enemy to break through, but the mere appearance of Glaurung, you know, this like new and intimidating creature shows that you don't know what Morgoth has up his sleeve, right? I mean, it, it, it even the extent to which it sort of demonstrates that Morgoth has a, an R&D department, right? Um, is a big deal. Um, so they don't, you know, even if they say to themselves, this has been working well so far, they have reasons to be concerned that it's not going to be able to last forever, that sooner or later, Morgoth is going to come up with something that's going to totally shatter this. And Glaurung, of course, wasn't totally defeated. He just went, they didn't kill him or anything. Um, so even that, clear, even just Glaurung himself gives cause for concern. Um, and of course, there have been other attacks. Uh, we know that the the attack on the on the stockade, the battle with uh, Haleth's people clearly demonstrates that the leaguer is not perfect. Orcs can break through. Beleriand, even behind the lines, behind the the uh, the you know the siege lines, is still not a safe place. Um, and this, of course, is especially true when we consider the other elements which we have played up significantly in our story. Things like. Thorin Gwethel and her spies, right? Tivildo and his cats. Um, there are, in apart from roving orc bands, such as those that attack Haleth's people um, near Estilad, uh, It's there's, of course, these other issues, these other spies and scouts and assassins and things that are sort of creeping around and able to creep around. So, okay, so the siege is, is, is going okay. Now, in the book, Fingolfin proposes the attack on Angband, right? Um, and this is attributed, at least in part, to his increased confidence, right, with the the men on their side now, right? Um, so this can certainly be a plot line that we will come back to Fingolfin particularly, and we'll talk about his relationship with the House of Hador and all that. Um we know from the book that Angrod and Aignor back Fingolfin's appeal. Fingolfin puts it out there uh, to the rest of the Noldor that we should attack and drive Morgoth out now, not just keep holding on and waiting in the siege. Angrod and Aignor are with him. And again, in the book, we're told that this is because of like g- geography, basically. They're like staring out uh, over... Ardgalen towards, like, they basically, they're functionally like in sight of Angband, right? And so they are much more aware of the... It's easier to forget about Morgoth elsewhere. Um, Even um, other places along the perimeter are not quite as sort of constantly, like, in the line of fire, essentially, from the gates. So they are aware of the fact that they're, uh, like... Morgoth is sort of more present to them, Um, whereas those who live further away um, don't back Fingolfin to fight. This question that Marie has posted next is the question that I can't answer. Why do Finrod, Fingon, and Mithros decline the fight? I I can think of reasons why Finrod might decline it. I could probably come up with reasons why Fingon would decline it. I can't think of why Mithras would. That's the thing that I just... I just... I don't see. I can't see. It seems... It looks to me like a mere inconsistency. Like an inconsistency with Maedhros' character. Why would Mithras not want to attack? Why would he refuse? He is... Eager. Ever since he has been taken down from the cliffside and been recovering, he has been fiery and eager to fight. Fingolfin is saying, okay, everybody, let's go. And Mardros is what? Like, eh, nah, I'm good. Let's just not for some reason. I can't think of a good reason why he would say that that's what i need help with. so this is this is so this is what i was talking about. this seems to me honestly like a weak part in the story. um which is not shocking. i mean yeah. remember the silmarillion stories it's not written like a novel, right? i mean it's 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 not like every single character like the you know the thoughts, desires and motivations of every single character are the primary thing driving every bit of the action. it's not that kind of story, right? but i just I, am I'm trying, I'm trying to think of compelling reasons why Mithros would say no. And I'm having a hard time coming up with something that really works. Now, Julie says, what if his people are more against it and he's respecting their wishes? Well, first of all, why would they be? Why would they be? But secondly, if we introduce a division between Mithros and his people. Right? Basically, if Mithros is gung-ho to go fight, but his people are all like, you know what, dude? Like, we're not into it. No. Um, that That's a big storyline in itself. Right? The gap between Mithros and his people. Um, his, what? His failure as a leader? His, the fact, the way in which, like, how he's been changed puts him out of tune with the rest of them? Um, but, um... I don't know. I mean, so Julia, it's it's I I could see that as a theoretical possibility. I'd still need a reason why his people don't want to. Um, I mean, these are Fanorians, right? I mean, a lot of these people who are refusing to fight are presumably people who like rode over in the ships with Fanor, right? Um, why why do they say no? You know, why are they not a part of this, um, Marie? Exactly the oath. It's like not attacking is pretty much against the oath. It's, it, it's one thing, it's, it's one thing to say like, well, he's not, the you know, despite the oath, he hasn't attacked yet. I mean, if like, uh, you know, if the oath is binding him, then you could say like every single day he wakes up and he's like, you know, still not attacking Angband, right? Like still not, uh, that basically if he's able to do that If he's able to not attack on any given day, then he could not attack on every day. Right. In theory, if you extend the the same logic. Um, But um, so sure, I get the fact that the it's not true that the fact that they've sworn the oath means that, like, they can do nothing but attack all the time. Obviously, they can bide their time they are capable of strategy and long-term thinking, right? The oath doesn't drive them to mere, you know, automatic rashness. You know, like, um, uh, like a, a CPU-driven mob in an RPG, right? Like flinging themselves individually into death. Uh, uh, or like an NPC that you're trying to protect in, a, in an RPG, alternatively. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, like, the oath doesn't have to drive them like that. Right. But a situation like this for him to be an agent of thwarting the attack? Right? When 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 the king and the high king of the Noldor is saying, let's go, and for all of the Thanorians to be like, nah, no, mm we're good. I just there would have to be a compelling reason. So it is possible so Maria's thinking about um sort of strategy reasons. Um, so she's suggesting, okay, he thinks they'll have better chances later. Okay. I mean, that's, I, that's one of the only things that I can think of as being acceptable, but, but how, why? Okay. So Marie says he sees the loss of Doriath and Gondolin is putting the Noldor at a disadvantage. That is, so if they're not, if Targon is not going to be in play and Thingol won't come, um, they should what? wait until they can put themselves in a better position. Um, uh, he might think that more men will come uh, so some men have come now and that's a that's a bonus, but what if more men come afterwards um, and then we can increase our armies even more and give ourselves an even better chance um, okay, possibly um, I think. Um, yeah, Marie, I, I, I think I agree with you that the only way, the only way this could, the only way that feels to me at all compelling that this could work is, Marie says, that basically Mithras thinks he's got a better plan. It's not that he doesn't want to attack. It's that he doesn't like Fingolfin's plan. And so he doesn't support it. Um, not because he doesn't want to attack, but because he wants to attack differently or to take some other different kind of approach. I think that that's possible. Um, Yeah, Julie was just thinking along in the same directions. Disagreements about tactics and ways of doing it. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. But the problem is... Here's here's my counter argument. So first of all, we can do that. We'd have to think of some really compelling details for that, though, um, in order for me to be totally sold on it. But I'm I'm willing to entertain that. I, I do I do admit that seems to me at least plausible. It like it, it fits with Mythros' character, whereas like mere apathy does not fit with that's what I can't accept. I cannot accept with the story that we've told of Mythros so far that he's just like. Nah, I'm good. I'm just going to stay. He wouldn't do that. Our Maedhros would not do that. Whether or not Tolkien really thought, uh, you know, this issue through really carefully and decided for very cogent reasons that his Mitros wouldn't do that. Maybe he did. And I just don't understand what his thoughts about those reasons were. But I cannot see our Maedhros doing that. So I do think that that suggestion, the alternative tactics suggestion, um is plausible, but again, I would need to, I would need to see the details there. Um, I don't think, let's see, uh, Michael, you were suggesting the possibility of some kind of, um, uh, premonition. Uh, you know, that now is not the right time or something like that. Um, yes, this sort of gets onto, um, the, you know, the question Marie was asking down there about, you know, how heavily we want to rely on foresight for plot purposes. We do have to be a little bit careful. On the one hand, there's nothing implausible about multiple people having foresighted moments on lots of occasion. I mean, these are all major, you know, elf lords, right? Who you would think would be perfectly any one of them. It would be perfectly plausible for them to have some kind of um, significant insight or foresight. Uh, so it could be quite a common thing, but I'm not sure that we want uh, to make it too common, right? It, it, I think it'd be easy for us to cheapen that if we're, uh, uh, if we're not careful. Um, Stephen says uh, could could they mistrust Fingolfin and think he'll try for the Silmarils? See, Curafin Yes, Mithros. No, I don't see Mithros thinking that way, uh, especially not with Fingon and Fingolfin. Um, but again, Fingon is supposed to be one of the ones who's not psyched about it, and I don't. I have a hard time with that one too. Not as hard a time as I have with Mithros, but. Um, uh, what if? Um, yeah. What if? What if? What if somehow they undermine
0: Mithor? Like this could potentially be the reason for a. Uh, uh, a gap between Mytheros and his people. They they stir up distrust and uh, trouble.
1: Right, right, yeah, um, uh, yes. Now the problems there. Now again, there's there's uh, on the one hand, there's no problem with that kind of thing in the sense that that's a very kura finished thing to do, and we have introduced. Potential for that kind of thing with Kurafin. It certainly fits his character. It's the kind of thing that he might do. Um, We know that not all of the Feanorians were 100% on board with Maedhros's abdication of the High Kingship to Fingolfin in the first place, right? So, whatever happens, I think that Fingolfin's call to war is going to be greeted by some of the Feanorians. I think probably not Mithros, but some of the Feanorians as uh, with resistance on principle. Right. Because there have been very few occasions on which um, there have been very few occasions on which we've had Fingolfin actually acting as high king. Right. Attempting. To act as high king. When we talked about that last season, the question of what does it mean to be high king of the Noldor? In, you know, what does that what are the what are the duties associated, right, with being high king of the Noldor? Do you get a hat? You know, how does that work? <laughs> uh, and I don't think we decided on the hat, but we did decide that essentially what it means is that you are the overgeneral in war, right? Um, they need an overall coordinator in the fight against Morgoth and that's what it, primarily what it means to be High King. Each one of the Kings is enabled to run their own kingdoms, right? And do their own things. They don't have to ask Fingolfin's permission judicially, uh, right? Uh, or, you know, or, or, or legislatively, right? They don't go to him for laws. Um, so, uh, here it is, right? here i mean this is the moment this is like the only moment so far really i mean i guess you could say when the dagor aglareb was happening right and it's time to rally the troops because the enemy is attacking and the fanorians did you know come uh somewhat you catastrophically right to that battle at the end and 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 brought the final victory um that um fingolfin was sort of in charge there kind of but this is a place where Fingolfin is going to be, for the first time, really going out on a limb, essentially, and trying to exert some actual high kingly leadership among the rest of the Nolar and saying, okay, I believe it is time for us to attack. And this might not look like it's going to work out well, but I think we should, because I kind of like have a good feeling about what will happen if we do. And so some of them... Khorifin especially, I think, uh, Marie, as you're saying, would resist that just because they still think... Khorifin clearly still thinks Fingolfin is a (laughs) jumped-up younger brother who should not be the High King in the first place, right? Um, Would he go so far as consider him a usurper? Well, I mean, not not technically, but, you know, like, almost in principle, right? Like, he doesn't really... He clearly will be at the best reserved and at least resentful of Fingolfin's right. any commands from Fingolfin, which Fingolfin doubtless knows and is one of the reasons why he isn't given very many, right? This is one of the first times that he's done this. So resistance to Fingolfin on the part of the other fanorians I'm fine with, but again, not Mithros. Remember that we When we were talking through this question at the beginning of last season, that is the question of why does Mithros abdicate? You know, what is he thinking? How do we make this fit within the story of Mithros that we're telling with the character of Mithros as we're developing him? And as I recall, our answers to that question were that he was focused on the war against Morgoth, right? And he wanted to make sure that they were not divided because he knew that if they if the if the breach between the fanorians and the rest of the noldor was not healed and they did not find a way to all work together they would not be able to join together in their war against morgoth and that he calculated that if he abdicated to fingolfin and he basically delivered the fanorians to to say you know, on my authority as the head of my brothers, we are going to go along with Fingolfin. Whereas if he kept the uh, high kingship for himself, the followers of Fingolfin and Finarfin were not going to follow him, right? So that was guaranteed division. Whereas again, with Fingolfin, all he'd have to do is manage his brothers, which was at least more in his power than trying to win over the followers of Fingolfin and Finarfin. Uh, So that was the kind of calculus that we had Mythros doing so, but again, what I keep coming back to is again, our rationale was he's focused on the success of the war <laughs> against Morgoth, so he's not gonna pull back from that, right? Um, uh, but again, there certainly will be tension, there certainly will be tension from the other Fanorians, especially Kurofin and Kelgorman and Karinthir, I would think. Um, uh, but again, I don't see it. Not from Mithros himself. This was Mithros's whole strategy. It's almost—it's almost as if, right—that the whole decision that he made to abdicate the high kingship to Fingolfin in the first place was like preparation for exactly a moment such as this, when it's time for them all to join together and fight. So, if anything, I would think that the Mithros character, as we've been developing developing him, would be saying, "Finally! Oh man, we've been waiting for everybody else to." get themselves in gear and be ready to attack. Um, so, again, it could there could be a tactical difference of opinion. He might have a, uh, he might differ from Fingolfin sufficiently so that he finds himself in a tight place, mythe right? He doesn't think that Fingolfin's plan is a good plan. Um, he has another plan that he thinks is a much better plan, but he doesn't want to enable, and but he knows his brothers are looking for an excuse, right, to go off and leave the rest of the Noldor behind, to basically split off uh, and openly um, reject the authority of Fingolfin as High King, and he doesn't want to let that happen because he knows if that happens, then we're right back to divisions and you know two conflicting camps, and any hope of them joining in a unified attack against Angband at any point is down the tubes, right. So, so I can see Mithros being caught in a, uh, caught in a tough, complicated kind of situation there. Um, But this is again, what leads me to feel like his tactical disagreement with Fingolfin would have to be huge in order for him to differ from him, in order for him to pull back from it. Um, Now, Jacob, it is, of course, I mean, Mithros is scarred physically, missing a limb still, psychologically. Um, But the way that we've been working through that is that his... And it just, I mean, and this, of course, is following what's described in the text. Um, he's as one who returns from the dead, right? He is, he is transformed by his experience. But if he is transformed, it is to make him a more ferocious warrior and a more uh, dedicated enemy uh, against Morgoth. Um, so I don't think we have not given to Mithros the sort of category of you know PTSD that would lead him to just be hesitant and uh uh and to pull back from it um, yeah um, yeah maria i do agree in order for him to disagree with fingolfin he would have to be certain that fingolfin's plan will fail yes that is what would have to that would have to be true in order for Mithros to regretfully, grudgingly, hesitantly oppose Fingolfin's plan to attack. Well, all right, let's, let's try to flesh out this idea some more then. What are the plans? what would be their two plans and how would there be such a difference? Hang on a second. Dave, what was your brilliant Fingolfin solution? You were the one who proposed the solution to the Fingolfin problem when we were talking about this before. Do you remember it? What was it? He had a premonition, (laughs) right? Yes, that's right. He had a premonition. What, so Something that
0: something that led him to think that that, that, you know, like something that was vaguely related to the idea that um, that deliverance would come from you know deliverance would come
1: from the Valar, yes. From if you attack it, they will
0: come. Yeah, and from their house, yeah. Where he definitely got some details wrong.
1: Yes, yes. That's right, that the Valar would would come and help them if he did this one simple trick. Exactly, exactly, okay. So, the only way I can make sense of this story then, because I really like that as a solution, Um, that, because that was, and and just to remind those of you who are as forgetful as I, um, uh, the problem that I'm talking about the solution to needing a solution to was how to make Fingolfin's final charge look heroic and not merely foolish, not merely suicidal, not simply an act of despair. Um, And the answer to that was that it was an act of faith, essentially.
0: Our our concern was that that once you translate the screen, it, it's it kind of looks pretty dumb.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: It's like, it, when, when you read in the text, you get and, and, you know, especially a text that's as pithy, um, um, and yeah. terse as um, the Silmarillion is at times, it's easy to skirt over those details. And it's easy for you as the reader to impose the all this the things that we're talking about here, where we're assuming like premonition, all that I think that's kind of thing that a lot of us have buried in our brains, when we read this section. Yes. it's easy to read that into it when you watch it on the screen it's just like what is wrong with this guy um, exactly exactly
1: so so
0: uh but i think but i think i think i see where you're heading which is like probably his plan is also going to look kind of crazy to everybody else right yes
1: basically exactly if his final attack right is yeah. not a new thing but only a continuation of his original plan, essentially that yeah. would be consistent from him. So basically what he's going to bring to the rest of the Noldor is, okay, guys, let's attack. Not because I think we can win, cause we probably can't, but because if we do, because I believe that if we do... Uh, Morgoth will fall. The Valar will come and help, and and Morgoth will fall, uh, and uh, we will all be delivered. But it require we have to take this step. Uh, and if we don't take this step, it's not going to happen, and he's going to come and destroy us one by one. So um, he would be asking everybody, basically, to make this leap of faith with him at the beginning. And so his solo attempt at the end will basically this will set up his solo attempt much better. we won't have to explain it then at that time right we 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 already know what his perspective is what his plan is right the change will just be he will say there is one last hope right like it looks like everyone is destroyed the dagor bragolak is happening we've lost um but the, we have one last hope right i can still execute the plan even if i do it literally by myself right Right. Um, uh, and so that sets it up to be even more of a act of heroic self-sacrifice rather than an act of suicide. Um, yeah. Of course, the downside to this plan is that he's still wrong. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, it doesn't work out it doesn't work out, and I don't wanna um I wanna be a little bit careful because if we go too hard with basically Fingolfin looking like a a sort of crazed zealot right um and saying like trust me, if we just do this, I know it sounds crazy, but it's gonna work out. We just have to do it and and then he does it, and it doesn't work out like it turns out he was wrong, and everybody who said he was crazy all along was right, right. I don't I don't love that, you know, I I mean, I still like it better than him just despairing and committing suicide. Um, But I think we have to be careful of that. And, Marie, I do agree. I think that we can um, um, I think that we can we can play this in some interest, especially since, of course, we can cheat. That is, we can we can show what the Valar are, are in fact thinking. In response to this, right? Uh, so we can uh, uh, we can show we can point towards long term uh, long term effects of this. Um, uh, well, I, I think what I would like to do uh, is you, to hold out you, hope that Sandolphin is basically not wrong. It's just it, it didn't happen the way that he thought. It didn't happen today.
0: Yeah, yeah, just bad timing. Yeah. But do, do you think there's also do you think we could also maybe kind of hinted the fact that like and that this is this is maybe getting into some sort of uh, kind of a almost a meta textual point of view but like do you think we could even kind of intimate that like this kind of had to happen too right like it's kind of kind of a bummer for Finn Golfin but like he's part of the overall he's part of the overall arc and and maybe that's something that we can contrive to make true right um, or at least down make the road yeah, like I, not something is like this would be trivial and stupid, uh, if we did something like this. But for example, we could contrive to make it to where he, like, I don't know, he puts a dent in the door or he, like, dislodges the gate somehow in a, such a way that it makes it easier for Baron and Luthien to get in later, you know, like, <laughs> not that, right? But, but you see what I'm saying, like, we, we could. could do something to suggest that this wasn't just like a heroically stupid death, but actually he did accomplish something and that that he did play a role in, in the will of the Valar. Um,
1: Yeah. Okay. You know where I think would be the best place to put that or the best place to go with that? Where the Angband story. Remember that one of the things that is emphasized in the text is Morgoth's need to save face in front of his followers. Right? Yes. When Fingolfin calls him out. Um, one of the ways in which I think that the d- the death of Fingolfin can have a long-term impact um, on, you know, the balance of power in Beleriand and stuff, is in the alteration that it makes to the dynamics within Angband. And in particular, I like it. I'm thinking, this is the beginning. We we were saying that at some point or other, there's going to have to be a wedge driven between Sauron and, and Morgoth, right? They're not going to work together like bros forever. Um, some rivalry, something's going to happen. Um, and certainly he's going to leave and not come back. He's not going to be part of the, um, part of the whole story after Beren and Luthien, right? Um, so. Could this be the, a point, the point at which, and we, we've already set the stage for this, right? From the orc creation um, uh, to the way that's, that he, the, we've, we've given two examples already of when Sauron had a subtle cunning plan in motion, and then Morgoth comes in and ham fists it, right? Um, first with his, like, attempt to make... You know, dark elves essentially, and then Morgoth comes in and he's like orcs, right? And uh, and then secondly, with the spell of bottomless dread, right? When Sauron is doing this like really uh, subtle and cunning psychological manipulation, and then Morgoth comes back and is just like, whammy, right? I'm just gonna take over your mind. Um, uh, so there's been tension, right? And even places where Sauron's. He still respects Morgoth's strength, obviously, but has doubts, perhaps, that Morgoth is um, really kind of taking the best uh, um, long term approach, right? Um, Or at least, again, Sauron can increasingly believe that, like, you know, Morgoth is very strong, of course. Um, but he's not the leader that Sauron thought he was when he originally converted, right? Um, and increasingly, Sauron has reason to think, you know, if I were in charge, <laughs> I'd be wrong. Well, and Morgoth's probably. kind of been
0: Morgoth's kind of been decaying or deteriorating too, even from those early days. Yes, right? exactly. You know, he's kind of he's not
1: only out. he's not only less subtle. He's 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 weaker. Yeah, his strength is decreasing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um and so yes, when Morgoth answers Fingolfin's challenge, he has to answer Fingolfin's challenge. And when he gets wounded and he's like literally limping afterwards, right? Um that's not a good look, right? That's not a good look for that's, you know, like the uh, the alpha wolf is is limping, right? And the other wolves are going to be looking at him like can this guy really lead the pack anymore, right? You know, I mean there's 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 definitely um uh, mm-hmm. there's definitely some tension there. So that's, of course, Dave, it's not a perfect solution, but this is certainly one kind of, um, we can play, since we're doing much more with the stories of the bad guys and the kind of dynamics within Angband, we have, we have much more scope for dealing with the fallout from that and showing how this is going to weaken right. the yeah. bad guys. Um, uh, Sauron is gonna spin off on his own. After he gets his butt kicked by Huon and Luthian, he and Morgoth are not working together anymore. You know, he's not yeah. dead, you know, he's not gone. And, you know, we definitely, one of our fun challenges, you know, after next season, is going to be thinking about Sauron. What's, what's Sauron up to, right? Because uh, we don't want to lose sight of him, uh, even though he's not part of the main story uh, so much anymore. But... um but anyway, yeah, I, 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 I think, yeah. yeah.
0: Do you, do you foresee might we even like, could this, could this even potentially be a factor at the end in the final battle? Um, you know, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's not a matter of like, well, if only Sauron had been, you know, fully on board, right with Morgoth, uh, he might have won. Like, I, I don't think it would go that far. But like, definitely, like, definitely Sauron, Sauron's um, either faithlessness or treachery, like, sort of uh, expedites Morgoth's Or even just slowness, way. maybe. You know, there may, he might be yeah. slow to act on, in some way. Right. Yep. Right.
1: Yeah. I, I, you know, um, yeah. I, I, there's definitely, I think, some opportunity To show that. Um, Remember that, you know, one of our big picture things, we need to be showing Morgoth shrinking, essentially, right? We need to show Morgoth's downward, continued downward spiral. Um, And Sauron being aware of that. And of course. And you know, it's interesting. We're playing the long game there because Sauron's going to go down that path too, but he's not nearly so far along it yet.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because it's like there's part of me that there's part of me that initially resists this notion that like, you know, no, cause he, there's like this desire to maintain Morgoth as the ultimate bad right. guy. Right. But, but I think, I think this is consistent. I, I, I think I honestly do really think that this is kind of, um, that, that this is faithful to, to the story that's told in the Silmarillion in a couple of ways. The first one being that like, I think there's a lot of people who read The Silmarillion and come out thinking like, you know, Sauron still seems like a worse bad guy than the Smorgoth guy. The Morgoth right, guy seems right. like a clown a lot of the time. Right. And, and, and like that's an understandable read of the of the story. But I think also as you, you know, like, like this is, this, I think this is how Tolkien also, like this is his worldview of, yes. of evil. It undoes yes. itself.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, here's a thinking about film comparisons, right? I mean I, I I, understand what I th- if I'm understanding correctly, Dave, your hesitance to go down this way. I'm suspecting no. that it's something like you don't want Morgoth to end up looking like Voldemort in the Deathly Hollows. Right? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. By the end of he's the last literally movie Morgoth. He's not right. Well, he's not very scary anymore. Like he he, no. he Right. But but the problem there I, th- I here's the difference right The difference is there's a there's a gap a g- the the reason why I think that Voldemort by the end of the Harry Potter movies ends up failing ultimately as a villain is that a gap opens up between what we are told to believe about him and what we see and feel, right yeah, we're told like oh no, he's like more powerful than ever before, but we don't see it. we don't feel it it right. he seems like a joke, increasingly, right? And so, increasingly, I know when I watch the Harry Potter movies, which I don't do that often, but I have rewatched them, especially with my son in the house, um, when I rewatch the Harry Potter movies, I am conscious, as the films proceed, of an increasing demand of suspension of disbelief on my part. Right? Right. Um, Because I don't buy it anymore. I don't buy him as a convincing villain anymore. with Morgoth, the difference here is that we wouldn't have that gap because we're not asking people to believe that he is the same. We're showing them that he's lesser, right? Um, Right, Instead, what we're showing is like the tragic fall of him. He's supposed to look something like, uh, think about like uh, Macbeth in act five of the play, right? By act five of the play, Macbeth is just like a thug. Right, I mean, he was this. That's grandiose... a perfect
0: parallel. Yeah, yeah. he was that's this grandiose character
1: at the beginning, right? Wonderful yeah. general and everything, and then he like starts going downhill, and by yeah. Act Five, he's just like kill everybody, right? And 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 ultimately getting overthrown. Um,
0: that's well, and I think the other difference also is, unlike Voldemort, you know. Morgoth is is the one saying, oh, "I am still the great Mor, you know, Melkor." Right. But everybody around him's like, "Not so much," right. and, you know. What I mean, right? We're, and Sauron, in particular, sees,
1: would would, right. would be like, "This is embarrassing. Like, this is this <laughs> not what he was." I'm not going to pretend. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. And he's lost by then. So by the end, he's mm-hmm. lost Sauron. He's lost Gothmog. He's lost Glaurung. Right. I mean, it's it's you know he's got his his new batch of dragons. He's got Angkallagon, but that's all he's got. You know, um, yeah. and a few. You, you know, he still has some Balrogs. He still he still yeah. still has some of them.
0: Yeah, um, and and in that sense, in that sense. Yeah, you're right, because in that sense, that is evoking like the impression a lot of people, the you know the impression I mentioned that a lot of people I think get at the at the end of the summer which is that like Morgoth doesn't come off as that as scary of a bad guy as Sauron mm-hmm. in the Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings, mm-hmm. which you know part of that has to do with like the scope, the way the story's told and stuff, but I think it's also exactly what you're saying, which is like he's revealed to be increasingly less scary as the story goes on because he's diminishing right. himself.
1: But there's a fun paradox there, right? Because yeah. although he is personally declining, his dominion in Middle Earth seems almost absolute. I mean, like by yes. the time the exactly. War of Wrath comes around, to everybody who lives in Beleriand, it looks like he is unconquerable now. Like no, and there's yeah, nothing we could ever do That's to yeah. defeat him. Yeah. Um, which,
0: which yeah. I think, but I think that makes sense in some sense because, in order to accomplish that, he has to diminish himself exactly because he has. To Exactly. He spread his evil. So, so it's like Morgoth himself is not the real danger, but evil. It, evil is not diminished in any way. Evil continues to be like the same kind of level of threat. And, like, but I'm, I'm imagining scenes of Sauron being like, How "Does this guy keep winning?" Right, and that. And the thing that's so interesting yeah. about that is that age is... An age or two later, Sauron almost does the same thing, right? Exactly. He he's gonna.
1: He's, he's gonna get there. Yeah. Exactly. He's gonna get there. And so showing interesting. how he replicates that without really being yeah. aware that he's replicating it is gonna be really fun to do.
0: But yeah. that's
1: how we can make Fingolfin's foretelling sort of come true. Not in the way that he thinks, right? He, he has a sort of a foresight of the War of Wrath. Right? He believes that the Valor are going to come, and he's not wrong about that. It's just not going to happen, you know, he comes to believe, he convinces himself that if they just attack, the Valor are coming right away, right? Um, and that's not true. That turns out not to be right. But he isn't wrong that the Valor are coming, and he's also not wrong that their attacking will bring about something good. And the thing that I think... It can bring about the good that it can bring about, of course, we will show that it brings about bad things among the bad guys, right, which is good for the good guys. Um, but it can also bring hope, I think. Um, I think here, if we can we can play on a theme, obviously we don't want to go too far because we don't we certainly don't want to undermine the Effect of the Baron and Luthien story, but really, I'm not too worried about undermining the effect of the Baron and no. Luthien story, um, uh, because I, I, that story is going to be powerful enough in itself that I don't think we need to worry about it. But um, if the the hope that comes from it is essentially that Morgoth is assailable, right? He is not uh, the I don't want to. I don't want to say this too strongly. I wanted to say the littleness of Morgoth, right? Um, there might be a temptation. Many people in Middle Earth are probably tempted to look at him as like this. You know, I mean, he's one of the Valar. He's one of the gods. For we are fighting a god here, right? Um, and not only that, but weren't we told that he was the greatest of all of the Valar, right? This is like the one that we hold to be High King of all of Arda is our enemy's little brother, right? Isn't that right, O oh Eldar, who studied under the Valar and Valinor? We're getting that right, aren't we, right? Here I'm imagining myself as one of the humans fighting with them, right? So tell me what? again how this is a good plan. You know, why on, how on earth should we... Why should we even stand up to him? Why is this... Shouldn't we just be running away as far as we possibly can? And Fingolfin will show... Fingolfin's duel with Morgoth will show... You know, no. Like, he bleeds. He limps when you stab him. Um, Just as his authority is going to be undermined among the bad guys, hope that resistance is not futile Um, will be born among the good guys as a consequence of this, even in the ashes of the Dagor Bragalach, right, when it looks like, you know, when the siege has been broken and it looks like that, you know, their own strength is very, very much lesser, right, at this point. And yet, Fingolfin has still shown them hope. He is not unassailable. It is possible, it is possible for the good guys to win. Um, yeah, yeah. Kind of like Leonidas wounding Xerxes right before he and his fellow Spartans are slaughtered in Three Hundred. Lincoln, yeah, a little bit like that. Yeah, a little bit like that. Um, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, exactly. Chris says their uh, their fight brings Morgoth back down to earth in people's minds. Yes, exactly. Now, of course. Um, fortunately, we, the text also provides us an eyewitness account of this, right? Thrandor can tell them what happened uh, so that um, uh, the news uh, which brings hope comes from this, right? Um, we're told at the beginning of the chapter on the Nirnith Arnoidiad, um, when Mythros leads the second attack against Angband, um, that he took heart because of the story of Baron and Luthien. Right? Seeing through Beren and Luthien's victory against Sauron, or against Morgoth, sorry, and Sauron, along the way, um, that uh, Morgoth is not unassailable. That's what inspired uh, Maedhros to uh, launch his attack. I think that we can kind of fold Fingolfin into that, basically. First Fingolfin, and then Beren and Luthien, right? Um, He is not unassailable, even by arms. Right. I mean, you just like get into an old fashioned sword fight with Morgoth and, you know, you can wound him like it's, it, it's possible. He could get taken down. Um, uh, and then Baron and Luthien show what even two people, you know, an elf maiden and a human man can do uh, in their infiltration of Angband and their recovery of a Silmaril. Um, so if we show those as sort of like cumulative signs of hope, I think. Um, uh, I think, it's, uh, I think it, it works reasonably well. Okay. But, but the fact is, so Fingolfin is not... He doesn't die in vain. He isn't just proven wrong and end up a failure. His death does accomplish something. But things don't work out as he was planning. The Valar don't come. He was wrong. And therefore, Maedhros would have been right to oppose him. If he says, I've got an idea. Frontal assault right against the fortresses of Angband. And Maedhros is like, I've been waiting for literal centuries for somebody to make a plan to attack our enemy. And this is what you bring me at the end. Let's just throw our armies uselessly against the strongest points of our enemy's defenses, that's your point. That's a bad plan, right? We need a better plan. Let's attack him in a way that I don't know, might have a chance of working. Right. Um, And then he's like, no, 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 but you're not understanding. The beauty of this plan is that it will certainly not work, but that's not the point. The point is not that it will work. The point is that it will lead to this other consequence and the Valar will come and save us. And Maedhros is like, no, no, that's a bad plan. And he can say, not just, is this a foolish plan? But Maedhros would say, I don't believe the Valar are coming. The Feanorians are gonna have a harder time buying that plan. Even Mithros would have a harder time buying that the Valar are gonna forgive them and come rushing in. Um, He would not buy that at all. And so to him, Fingolfin's attack, which in theory seems like exactly what he would want turns out to be this, like, super frustrating moment for Mithros because it's only going to be something that's going to weaken their strength because it's just going to end up leading to the death of many of them uh, and he can't see how it could possibly work and he certainly doesn't believe that the Valor are going to come. Yeah, exactly, Marie. He will speak of the Doom of Mandos, right? They're on their own. Uh, he remembers very well what Mendo said to them. Uh, and if Fingolfin has convinced himself that it doesn't apply to him exactly, Mithros retains a clearer memory of those words, right? The vow are not coming, Maedhros would say. And of course, now think of the horrible pickle that this puts Maedhros in with his brothers, right? Curufin is now like, and you still want this clown to be the High King of the Noldor, right? Come on now. Um, Uh, it's time for us to, you know, stop the, the, you know, the charade of pretending to be, uh, uh, you know, subjects of Fingolfin when like, really, this is what he's going with. Um, and Mythros is still going to try to hold the union together, but he is not going to want to follow Fingolfin and, um...
0: Hey, Hey, Corey, I have a, I have a possibly crazy idea. Okay. Is there a way we can do this where we could uh, intimate that maybe Fingolfin was right and that uh, the Feanorians deciding not to support him uh, uh, is what caused it to fail?
1: If they had done what Fingolfin said as he said it, it would have worked.
0: Yeah. And in particular, suppose what Fingolfin comes and proposes is not merely, hey, guys, I have this uh, battle plan. We just need to follow it. What if he comes and says, all you have to do for this to work is you have to relinquish your claim on the Silmarils and relinquish your oath. We have to, we, we, the Noldor just need to repent and then attack and the Valor will save us. And we could intimate like, yeah, Uh, sure. Yeah, actually that probably would have worked. And then the Fanorians are like, Nope, can't do it.
1: Ouch. Oh man. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Well that's a super fascinating what if in any case. Yes. What if yeah, the Pharaohines had repented? Yeah. And I'm kinda
0: I'm kinda wondering like if there's an opportunity to explore that uh yeah. on several occasions throughout 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 the this, this story of like multiple opportunities where Maybe we don't come right out and say it. Like, well, if only they had repented, it would have. Our story would have ended here. But like, just like leave the at least leave the audience wondering. Like, you know, another occasion where they were given an opportunity to say, "We repent," and then they don't, and then things go horribly awry, and we're left wondering, like, what would have happened if they had repented? But like, I, I think I kind of I kind of love that idea. Even if even if we don't want to go so far as to 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 clearly states like if only they had repented, it would have worked. But like, I think presenting them, you know, having someone say, Hey, just repent. And I think this might work. And like having them emphatically say no, and then things go to hell and just leaving people wondering like, Hmm.
1: This, that is a crazy idea, Dave, (laughs) but I can't (laughs) pretend I don't (laughs) kind of love it. Um, Okay, but let's 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 think this through. The idea of the concept of Fingolfin having the notion that if they attack the Valar will come and help them is a spin-off of the Olmo turgen plan, right? This is not the, you know, of course Tolkien never attached that idea to Fingolfin in any way. But the idea is a Tolkienian idea, right? And it comes from the story of Tuor, especially the later story. Well, no, not especially. The whole story of Tuor from beginning to end uh, in chronology, that is in Tolkien's chronology, from the early versions of it until the last version of it, uh, uh, this idea was central to the Tuor idea. That the message, uh, especially in the early days, uh, in, in Tolkien's, in, to, in like the Book of Lost Tales days, the message to Turgon was if you attack, Olmo basically says to Turgon, if you attack, I will deliver the Valar. We will come and fight, you will win because we will come in and fight. And he, so he basically, it's almost like he's offering a bargain. It's not exactly a bargain. That's not quite right. But it's almost like he's offering a bargain to Turgon. If you attack, I, Olmo, will convince the rest of the Valar to come in and fight on your side. Um, now, so there, so that is the, the Fingolfin thing is a spin-off of that idea, but there are obviously a couple issues here. One is we don't want to just like totally remove that. I mean, we want to, I would like to keep that as an element with Turgon and Tuor, right? We don't want to undermine Tuor, Turgon and Earendil. Later on, obviously, um, mm-hmm. but but that doesn't mean that we can't introduce like an earlier act in that particular drama, right? Yeah. We just because oh, we can still have Omo basically making that pitch to Turgen, but that doesn't mean that there couldn't have also been another plan earlier on, right? Um, And Dave, that's what I'm loving about the repentance thing. Um, If we see this as like, so I'm going to, for argument's sake, I'm going to keep pegging Olmo with this because we know that he's the one who brings this forward with Tuor. So um, for argument's sake, let's say that it's still Olmo who's moving this thing, who's given this sort of like foresight to uh, Fingolfin with his dream. If he has a dream, uh, if we want to do a dream again. Um, uh, And marie exactly. Marie is pointing out that Fingolfin is Turgon's dad, who is uh, Arendel's grandfather, right? So it's uh, the idea that this is a a, a generationally unfolding plan, right? Uh, Because there's already this element, right? I mean, plan A, according to the early text, plan A was Turgon, right? Turgon was the chosen one who was supposed to bring about the end of the war and the downfall of Morgoth. He didn't do it. He screwed it up, right? It didn't happen and so plan b A-Rendel, right c and his plan b and of course plan b is is an excellent plan b um and is uh, it doesn't look like a a backup option right when it happens um okay what if we introduce what if we change those to plans b and c and we're basically introducing a a previous plan a right the first right. phase of almost plan is he says essentially to Fingolfin. They don't have to have an explicit conversation about this, but if the message is, okay, if you show your resolution to attack Morgoth and the Theonorians repent, because I can't deliver the Valar under any other circumstances. If I just go back to the Valar right now, it's still like the whole Doom of Mandos, really recent. People are still pretty sore about the kinslaying thing. Um, uh, They're not gonna come in and be like, okay, bygones, we'll just help them, right? Um, I can deliver the Valar if you attack and if the Feanorians repent. That of course isn't gonna happen. We know that's not gonna happen and so it doesn't happen. It doesn't doesn't work, right? Um, We don't have to change any, this doesn't involve changing any events. Everything is gonna happen like it happens in the book, right? Um, All we're introducing is a theoretical what if, which is not gonna come to pass. But I like the way that it is kind of staged out. Because, so plan A is if they repent and you, if they, if you attack and they repent, the Valar will come. Later on, after a couple generations of horribleness, right? Well, not, uh, human generations anyway, uh, that is, now the Dagor Bragalach has happened, now the Nirnith Arnoidiad has happened. Um, now, when Omo comes to Tuor, to deliver his message to Turgan, right? When, when we're coming now to, um, to phase two or, or like not fa- take two, right? Of, of almost plan, right? In take two of almost plan, he basically comes to, um, he basically comes to, um, to Tuor, well, to Turgon through or and says, okay, you know what? Everything has gone so badly. Like now. More time has passed. More terrible things have happened to the Noldor in Beleriand. Basically, the pity level towards the Noldor has increased greatly over in Valinor. Right at this point, I Omo think I can deliver the valor without an explicit repentance by the Feanorians. Right, they see what you guys have all been doing and trying to do. They've, they saw Fingulfen's attack. They've seen Baron and Luthien. Uh, they saw what you guys were trying to do and your, uh, your, your actions during the near knife Arnoidiad. Like, okay, they're ready. They're ready to say, you know what? They've already suffered a lot. Um, we'll go back and we'll, we will agree to, you know, basically again, Omo now says just attack. Don't, no need to get repentance from the Faenorians. No strings attached. Just attack, and, and Turgen still doesn't do it. And so plan B doesn't work either. And it takes Eärendil then going to Valinor to bring about the final change there. Um, that, I can get behind the shape of that. There, There seems to be some sense to that. And again, we're not, Actually, changing any external things that occur, right? Um, And and Chris, as you say, like the Fanorians won't repent, um, but it is it is important that they get the chance to do it. Yeah, I kind of want to offer them the chance. I mean, it's it's again, it's one of those things which never really gets put on the table, right? Nobody, everybody steps around the oath, but nobody challenges the oath. Nobody in the Silmarillion, apparently, I mean, at least in the narrative, right, goes to the Feanorians and says, guys, look, okay, like, just just give over on the oath, right? Um, just abnegate the oath and everything will be better, right? I know, I know, like, you know, eternal darkness, whatever. But again, like, Anticipating Maglor's words in his final debate with Mithros, right? Uh, uh, you know, or, and, and, and I mean, no, both, no, sorry, actually, I'm thinking of Mithros' words. Like the, the, either they're screwed either way, whether they keep the oath or whether they break the oath, less evil will they do in the breaking, right? I mean, that, that argument, one has to think would be, um, uh, would be coming up earlier as well, right? Um, and again, we don't get um, we don't get access to, because of the kind of narrative the Silmarillion is, we don't have access to those kinds of discussions. We know it was not with wholehearted enthusiasm that the Feanorians attack the um, uh, the refugees right by the Bay of Balar uh, when Elwing leaps into the sea and Elrond and Elros are captured, right? Um, we know that it was not heart wholeheart- we know that like some of the Feanorians like went over to the other side during the battle, right? There's obviously a lot of uh, mixed feeling uh, within the Feanorian camp. So what I'm saying is, this dis- this has to have been on the table. This question of like, okay, so this oath, yeah, I know we swore the oath. I know it's a big deal, but but really, honestly, seriously, shouldn't we think about repenting of this? Might we do less harm not only to others, obviously, but even to ourselves by repenting of this oath and trying to make it right, um, rather than just following it because we're like, we, well, sorry, swore the oath, can't help but do horrible things now. Um, again, that's, that's, it, when we're doing the kind of psychological depiction, right, when we're trying to make these into real characters, real people uh, that we're relating to and we're watching relate to other people, we're going to have to go there. Sooner or later, why not? Why not start that now? Why not plant that seed now? Um, I, 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 yeah, I uh, agree. I, I'm also
0: I'm also thinking like, um, for the purpose of an on-screen adaptation, you know, show don't tell. I I think we really need we 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 actually do, you're right. We need to go out of our way to give them opportunities to make things right and to have them repeatedly not do it. Mm-hmm. Just just to keep like, especially over the course of like a, you know, whatever our 30 year 30 season adaptation (laughs) Doctor who length epic. I feel like to keep this whole oath thing alive, like there needs to be like a periodic reminder of like, okay, this is really, this is a really awful thing. Like these people are despicable. Uh, and this oath is terrible. Just, you know, just like whenever we reach a point where people start to forget, we need to give them a reminder that these are like,
1: you know, recalcitrant, um, unrepentant people. Yes. Um, that w- when we do need to remind them of like how big a deal the oath is and how the oath drives them. Um, but also, we do need to show they they aren't also culpable. Like, it's not, they're not yep. just like victims of the oath, right? Uh, you know, yep. they made one rash decision following their dad in youth and now, you know, they're hosed for life. Like, that's, it's not that simple. Um, yep. And, uh, and it's true, you know, Maria is saying, we do, you know, the the one challenge is that the audience, uh, might not be able to understand why the Feanorians don't repent, right? Um, well, we can explain it from the point of view of their characters, but I agree, this is going to be a problem anyway, right? I mean, at many points, we're going to come across the fact that the the oath will drive them to do things which they're not otherwise going to want to do. Um, And we need to make that more convincing than Anakin Skywalker's choice to kill the younglings in Revenge of the Sith. I mean, that's that's not a high bar, but we need to clear that bar, right? Um, And Uh, so again, if we can begin to show that
0: dilemma. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was saying we have a very clear anti-example of what not
1: to do. Yes, (laughs) exactly, we we really do. now, Marie and Lincoln are both both mentioned at the same time, um, Amros. We have Amros, we have our disaffected Phan that we, you know, we we well we created his disaffection anyway, um after Amrod's death. Um, what if Amros speaks up in favor of Fingolfin's plan and the repentance? Right. So uh I mean, this—I mean, we don't want to play it for laughs, but it's a little bit funny, right? Fingolfin calls them together, and he's like, okay, let's attack Angband. And Mithros is like, yes, at last! And then he's like, but first, the Feanorians have to repent of their oath. And Mithros is like, well, crap. <laughs> That's not going to be so easy, right? And then Amros is like, yes, at last! <laughs> you know, um, I, I, uh, I I think it's um, I think it's I think it's interesting. I think it it raises a really interesting. Now, I mean, Amros has like zero clout with his brothers. Right? At least, I mean, Mithros might still be connected with him some, but I mean, it's it's not like Kurafin and Caligorm and Carinthir are going to be at all swayed uh, by Amros, right? Um, but. But yeah, having him have and and he doesn't have much in the way of military might, right? So it's not like he's a super valuable ally, uh, to Fingolfin here. Um, uh, but it certainly would, um, it certainly would enable, okay, hang on. So remind me, I remember we had Amras living in yurts. Uh, and painting things. (laughs) What else do we have Amras doing? What's his, what's his MO, uh, right now? I mean, he's kind of hanging off back off the front. He's, we had him, what was his attitude? Um, I know he was, we had him turning away from, uh, essentially turning away from the oath, right? Um, uh, yeah, he's convinced that he's bitter and convinced the oath will kill them all. Right, exactly, exactly. uh, yeah. Okay. okay, yeah. No, I think that that can work. Um, now, so I agree. Rhiannon was reminding us that we also had Amras basically being hopeless about the Noler's ability to attack Engband. Yeah, but that's that's not the point, though, Rihanna. And the point isn't that we're trying to transform Amras into, like, military hero here, right? Uh, it's not like we're trying to, you know, that that his reaction is not gung-ho, hooray, we get to attack. That's good, because I think we can win. That's not the point. Um, what he would be excited about is not the military thing. That's not why he would support Fingolfin. He would support Fingolfin because he, this would because of the repenting, right? Um, He's been wanting his brothers to turn away from the oath. And this now gives him more ammunition to call for that and to argue for that, right? Um, They can bring about, um, you know, I mean, hey, goodness, we can have him channel a Gandalf speech, right? Um, I I do not, you know, we cannot achieve victory by arms. Right. Uh, Amros could say that we cannot achieve victory by arms. Um, uh, you know, but, uh, yeah, so absolutely. And that's, that's fine. That's fine. I don't know that he has a lot of hope period. I mean, I think that Amros is not, I mean, he's not necessarily the guy at the top of your list that you want for your ally, uh, because I think he's, I mean, if any of the Noldor are on the verge of nihilism, it's got to be Amros at this point. Um, He is anti-Oath, right? He's bitter about the Oath. Um, But um, he's bitter about the Oath, but I don't think he's going to have... I don't think he's going to respond with bright eyes and glorified expression to the idea of the Valar coming to their aid, right? Um, I mean, ironically... I think he would agree with Fingolfin that they should repent, but he would agree with Mythros and his other brothers that the Valar probably aren't going to (laughs) come here, right? Yes, we should repent. It's not going to do any good, but yes, we should repent would seem to be Amros's uh, 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 place, right? You know, his his perspective. Um, Yeah. Yeah. and so, yeah, Jacob, you're exactly right. That can be played in both ways, right? I mean, him throwing his weight, like, as one of the Feanorian sons alongside Fingolfin saying, yes, I totally agree, we should repent, that can be undermined, basically, by um, one of his brothers basically saying... What are you talking about? You don't believe that we can win this war, nor do you believe that the Valor are going to help us. And he would be like, "Yeah, that's true. I don't believe either one of those things, but I still think we should repent." And so then Fingolfin will be like, "Oh, wonderful, one, wonderful ally I have here—somebody who doesn't believe in in this cause at all, in fact, but does in fact uh, agree with repenting." So I mean, it's 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 complicated, but but that, I mean, life is complicated. Um, so yeah, I kind of, uh, I kind of like this. Um, it is possible, Rhiannon, that we could, his opinions could change. Um, Rhiannon is reminding us that he also will have, have had plenty of opportunity to interact with men, uh, because he doesn't live far from Estelade. So it's possible that his interactions with men might have changed his views somewhat, but again, I, I don't think they necessarily need to. Um, I don't think they necessarily need to. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Jacob says Tolkien is big on the threes. If there are three big opportunities to repent, that seems to kind of fit, doesn't it? Um. Yeah. I kind of like that actually. Um. There are three opportunities for. The if the Noldor do the bold and. The bold, unexpected, and impractical looking thing they could win. Right? They're going to be three. If we do this, there'll be three occasions on which that would be true. This would be the first one. Turgon attacking from Gondolin would be the second one. And Arendal setting off to sail to Valinor would be the third one. And the third one would look least likely of the three. Right? And also. Breaking off in a completely different pattern, right? Instead of attacking Angband, he'd be heading straight to Valinor and breaking all the rules and defying the ban of the Valar, and uh, which seems like a really bad way to get in their good graces. And um, uh, but anyway, so it seemed like the, more, the most the third fertile... one really.
0: The yeah. third one really looks like just a complete hail mary.
1: Yeah, exactly. An absolute hail mary is exactly more or less what I, it is.
0: <laughs> and I kind of, you know, I like this idea because I think even in the published Silmarillion, um, Turgon's destiny isn't completely clear. No, no. It, it, it's a little uh, ambiguous, and it's not. And, I, and so I like, I, I like the idea of really making it obvious that there were chances before. Yes, and that, and that, Air, and that, um, that Earendil's. 'cause that's the, that it's not just completely like this guy's just doing this crazy thing for no reason, yes, um but that the, it looks you know like playing like like setting it up with these earlier storylines, I think will make it easier for the audience to to understand what's going on and why he's doing that, why he you know why he has this act of faith because yes. because because you know because this this opportunity was present before um there's precedence and you know maybe turgon I, now I'm really wondering what interesting things we can do with Turgon, but at least like Fingolfin we see, like has this has this faith as well. Yes. Uh, and then Arendelle is really kind of, he's really just kind of like the culmination of that.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. And I, I do agree. I mean, it's, it's one of the, if I had to make, and I don't generally like thinking this way, but if I had to make a, a short list of shortcomings of the published Silmarillion, high on my list would be the lack of payoff uh, for Turgon's character. Um, there are lots, and I've ranted about this before on this podcast recently, that the A.R. story doesn't get fully paid off and that all those prophecies about Turgon and Morgoth, you know, uh, uh, shuddering when Turgon walked by him in Valinor and stuff never gets any direct payoff or the the only payoff it gets is very indirect and really kind of unsatisfying, um, compared to what it was actually setting up when Tolkien actually wrote those lines, you know, and then the story didn't end up working out that way. Um, so, um, so yes, if we can kind of pay that off better and, and, and do that by setting it up more clearly, um, I like that. And, Dave, I like what this does to Fingolfin's final choice at the end, too, right? It makes Fingolfin's final... Fingolfin is doing a Hail Mary at the end, right? Yep. Um, Yep. Everything else has failed. It didn't work. The Theanorians wouldn't repent. We didn't even get a chance to attack, and now it's never going to happen, right? I thought, I believed we had this one chance, and now our one chance has lost us. There's nothing we can do. Oh, wait, maybe there's one hope. Maybe I can't bring this about, but maybe if I do, if I pursue, even alone on my own, knowing that I'm going to die, pursue this vision that I've had, perhaps hope can still be born. Right? And hope will be born from this. Um, Yeah. uh, Yeah,
0: I I feel like this uh, makes that choice a lot more relatable. Yes. Uh, Maybe it still doesn't make any sense yes but it's at least now it's like you know i get it like yeah yeah no this guy he had it it right and yeah and he was foiled by his his idiot relatives
1: right he had it right now how about fingen and finrod in conjunction with this what would be their reservations um what would be their reservations finrod Finrod tends to be a preservationist, right? Like he's the guy who brought all the extra jewels over from Valinor. He's the guy who is setting up his little like proto Valinorian state, right? Um, or not proto his little, you know, uh, recap Valinorian state. Um, uh, yeah, both Rihanna and Marie are suggesting that Finrod would see this as contradictory to the mission of, Nargothr- of, of Nargothrond. He was told to build a safe haven, right? And now Fingolfin is saying, let's like empty it and attack uh, in this attack, which even Fingolfin himself can't say that he believes is necessarily going to work, you know? Um, so Finrod could have hesitations because this, this doesn't conflict with the vision that he's received and he, he doesn't see how they go together. Um, and so he has doubts and he's not going to, he's going to be very reluctant to speak against Fingolfin, uh, in, in council, but he would have reservations because it doesn't fit either his calling to found Nargothrond, or as we said, his, his, his natural impulse, his sort of preservationist impulse. Chris, he is a conservative in that way. Yes, yes. Um, uh, how about Fingen? Um, Fingen, of course, is the closest partner to his father, right? He's the one who, like he and Fingolfin worked most closely together up there in the Northwest. Um, so a division of mind between the two of them seems like a pretty big deal, really. Um, but of course, one of the other elements that we have to keep in mind is that is Finrod's friendship, or Fingon's, sorry, friendship with Mithros, right? So Fingon would be, it's not that his loyalties are divided, but he certainly would have empathy for Maedhros's suggestion. I would think that Mythros would make a positive, he wouldn't just stonewall, right? He would come back with a positive suggestion. He would say, okay, Fingolfin, attacking, love the idea, let's go on the aggressive and attack Morgoth. I've been waiting for this for centuries, but maybe not the desperate, let's throw our lives away, hoping the Valar will come rescue us plan, which is not a good plan. It's not even really a plan. It's a hope founded on really bad premises, right? Um, And I don't believe those premises at all. The Valar are not coming. So that being the case, how about instead we rely on sound military strategy instead, right? And Fingon could be like, sound military strategy sounds kind of attractive. (laughs) Hey, Dad, (laughs) what if we gave the sound military strategy thing a try first, right? Would that do any harm? maybe we could, you know, um, maybe we could go there and do that. Um, uh, and Maria's pointing out, of course, he's also the one with the personal experience of Glaurung. So that might be an angle for him as well, that he's sort of saying like, a a plan, which takes, the enormous monstrous dragon into effect is a superior plan in my personal judgment, right? So, um, yeah. How about we do that? Um, yeah. So if he is based, so again, he's going to be even more reluctant than Finrod would be to speak against Fingolfin, right? Um, but his own inclination would be towards his friend's thinking. Um, now, Fingon and Mythros would not be of one mind completely, because Mythros is still going to... Well, okay, hang on, let's come back to the question. If we're going to do this, if we're going to do the opportunity to repent concept, we need to, we need to resolve more firmly what the Theonorians are thinking about this. Amros, two thumbs up. We're all going to die and it's going to be horrible, but I'm all behind the repenting thing. Let's do that. Right. Um, so Amros speaks out against the oath. What are the rest of the, what are the rest of their reactions to it? Mythros. I think that mythros' reaction is not, no, I don't want to. I think Mithros' reaction is there's no point. It's not going to do any good. Even if we did repent the noble the thou aren't coming. Right. And anyway, he's so. I think that Maedhros's attitude towards the oath is sort of learned helplessness, (laughs) right? Like we can't, we're stuck. We're stuck. We have to, we have to pursue the oath. Right. Marie says Kurafin would be outraged that Fingolfin would ask them to renounce the oath. Yeah. Cause Kurafin resents, Fingolfin anyway, right? Khorifin doesn't even think that his brother should be, Khorifin thinks that he himself should be the High King of the Noldor, right? That's Khorifin's long-term, uh, that's, that's gotta be Kurifin's end endgame, right? Kurifin's end endgame has gotta be to make himself High King of the Noldor, um, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yep. and so with him, he's not, it's, uh, Kurifin would not even be doing any heart-searching about this right? Should we repent? Is repenting a good idea? You know, is that, do we need to repent? He wouldn't be going there. He would just be like, how dare you, uh, upstart usurper who I've been barely tolerating anyway, just out of, you know, trying to keep the peace with my brother and because he could probably beat me up even with one arm. Um, but no, I'm not going to take this from you, right? This is an attack on us. Um, this is, uh, and he would it, it, think how easy somebody like Curafin would be able to spin that, right? Okay. Um, this is an attack on the sovereignty of the Feanorians, right? This is an attempt to undermine them and to, uh, uh, I mean, like, oh man, this is like just exactly the, um, this is just exactly the kind of, uh, underhanded, uh, thing that we have been expecting, right? From Fingolfin ever since Mithros abdicated. Um, and yeah, the lines are pretty clear, right? You've got Maglor and Mithros together, you've got Kurofin, Keligorum, and Karinthir together, and then you've got Amras, right? Uh, who's all on his own. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Florian suggests Maedhros has some hope of future victory, but for different reasons than Celegorm and Kurofin with their takeover the other realms plan in the Baron and Luthian story. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking, that Kurifin, um Curafin, his long-term strategy is, let us unify all of the elves of Beleriand under my leadership, right? <laughs> That's step one. Step one to fulfilling the oath is getting everybody to bow down to me. Right. Uh, Because I'm obviously the one for the job who should be doing the leading around here, only nobody, uh, neither my older brother nor Fingolfin and the rest of them seem to be paying any attention to the obvious wisdom of that plan. So I'm going to have to be devious in order to accomplish that. Um, um, uh, So that's his view. Mythros What's Mithras' endgame? What's his goal? I'm not sure I agree with the first part of your statement there, Florian, though. I agree that Mithras differs from Kelgorm and Kurofin in this way, and I agree that Kelgorm and Kurofin are going in precisely that way that you were describing. I'm not sure that Mithras has hope. That's what I'm not sure I agree with. I think that Mithros does not have long-term hope for himself. I think that he thinks that he's hosed one way or the other. He just wants to go out well, basically. Um,
0: yeah, I like that. He he just his 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 resistance to Pengolfin's plan is not you know like. I really think there'll be a, there's a better outcome in store for me. It's more just, no, not like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to, my plan is to take out as many of the servants of of Morgoth as we can with me. Right. Like I want to, I, I, he doesn't think that he, that they're going to win long term. He's, he feels that he has to follow the oath. He doesn't see any way out of it. He doesn't think it can be repented of. I mean, that would be his, his argument. Like, Khurifin is like, we shouldn't have to repent of it. And what's worse, you shouldn't ask us to repent of it. It's an insult for you to ask us to even repent of it. I can't believe we're having this conversation. I'm insulted. Right. That's Khurifin's attitude. Amras is like, I, uh, you know, yeah, we totally should repent of it. Um, but we're all screwed under any circumstances anyway. So whatever. What's the point? Let's just live in a yurt. And Mythros Basically, doesn't believe in the oath, but he doesn't think he thinks that he's trapped. He thinks that he can't repent of it. Um, And um, but he's going to do the best that he can under the circumstances that he's in. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as Marie says, Mithros only leaps at the chance to throw everything away in battle after there is another Silmaril in play in Beleriand, and he knows he'd rather fight Angband than Doriath. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's... um, Here's maybe the best way to describe Mytheros' attitude to the oath is attempt to do the least harm, right? I know we're stuck. Good outcomes are counterindicated by our situation, but let's at least try to be, have things be as, lit, as, as, as as unhorrible as possible. Let's try to do as little harm as we can. Um, and yeah. Um, yeah, I like it. I like it, okay. That generally works for me. Now, Jacob is pointing out a very devious Kurifin subplot. What if Kurifin comes around? If Kurifin believes that Fingolfin is going to lead the charge and get himself killed, that would, of course, open up a high kingly vacancy, wouldn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. Which would be all to the good right because it's not a guarantee that it necessarily goes to fingon right i mean it's uh for curufin to open up the discussions again after they've been settled and mithros has abdicated to fingolfin once mithros did his thing which we depicted him doing without consulting his brothers first right um then uh um he's stuck right cuz he can't say let's uh let's usurp the throne from Fingolfin, that's, a, that's a, a way harder sell, right? But if he can help to bring about the death or to encourage the death of Fingolfin, uh, and it's now going to be an open question as to who's going to be. Is it going to be Fingon? Is it going to go to his son? Or maybe it goes back to Maedhros at this point? Or or if Maedhros won't have it, why not Kurifin? right? Um, we have him channeling Boromir now, uh, uh, just like we. I do. like it. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, that that could uh, that could that could work. That could work. Um, yeah, Florian. We will. Obviously, we're going to need to revisit all this when we come back to the Union of Mithros later on. Um, but that is a concern for another day. Is concerned for another day. Um, uh, okay. Good. All right. So there's good news and bad news. The good news, or the bad news, is that we've only talked about one slide and we've not quite finished it. The good news is that in our discussions of this one slide, we've <laughs> actually addressed a very large number of the other questions um, uh, that we had. Uh, so that's fine. I'm going to. Uh, the question of Rogrin and Anil escaping from Angband. Um, let's set that aside for now. Um, we're going to have to come back and do some um, elf uh, like loose some loose elf ends, right? Some sort of minor elf characters. Um, uh, I mean, even some of some fairly major characters are going to be pretty minor players in this season. Like Thingol, for instance, does not have a major role uh, in this season, really. We'll need to, t- and Goadriel, yeah, absolutely. So there's a, bunch of, um, there's a bunch of minor elf characters that we need to address. We need to figure out what, the, what, what are they up to? You know, what's their perspective here? Um, but uh, we'll, we'll come back to them. Kierden again, exactly, uh, Maria, I was thinking of that as well. So let's talk about Rogren and, and Anil and, and sort of that when we do like our sort of elf uh, catch all wrap up there. So, okay. Um, hang on, come back to Ignor Ang- uh, and Angrod because we didn't get to them. Finrod we talked about. Look at that. Say we're done with Finrod. Um, uh, yep. Okay, we're not completely finished with with Finrod. But actually, I'm good with Finrod for right now. He'll come up again later because Finrod is everywhere. He's our central elf character in the whole season. Um, but I'm okay with his trajectory as far as the elf plots are concerned. Fingolfin we've talked about at length, and I think we have a, a good plan, an innovative, daring plan uh, for Fingolfin here in this season. And then Mithros and the Feanorians. See, look at that. We already did three slides while doing that first one. So look at that. So in fact, we just have this one to catch up on, and then we're almost done. uh Eignor and Angrod, what is... So they support, in in the book, they support Fingolfin. So let's think about how and why they support Fingolfin. Um, I don't want it to be merely... Because from where we're sitting, we can see Angband and so we're more aware of the the threat of Angband than others are. Others can be kind of all a little more out of sight, out of mind with Angband than we can, because that's not a good reason to support a desperate and tactically hopeless attack. Exactly. You'd think they would be on Team Mythros, right? Uh, Like, you know, you'd think that that those who are looking out at the strength of Angband all the time would be like, we vote for sound military strategy, thanks. That sounds like a good idea to us. Um, um, But Marie, I agree with you. Marie, of course, quickly points out that... By introducing Dave's suggestion of the repentance of the Feanorians into the situation, that gives Angrod an obvious angle because he's been the one who's been angriest at the Feanorians all along. Um, So if he goes all in on the, yes, by all means, uh, you know, those dratted Feanorians should repent, um, uh, he would be all behind. Um, He would be... So what if... What if Angrod and I ignore both have that they share their enthusiasm for this idea, but the difference between their enthusiasm for the idea is that Angrod's is largely negative. In the same, like, I'm angry at the Fanorians and I think they should repent this. You know, I've been wanting them to repent for ever so long anyway, so yes, like, I really want to see that. I, you know, I. I want to see the, whereas Aignor, but he doesn't necessarily, Angrod isn't necessarily doing it because he believes the hope, right? That he could, because he believes that the Valar will come. What if Ignor does? What if Ignor has hope? What if Aignor is the one who, we have to have somebody who really catches Fingolfin's vision, who is like, Fingolfin, you know what? Yeah, I, I'm with you. I agree. If we do this, the Valar will come. This is our tick he, he needs a believer. Fingolfin needs at least one believer. We haven't even given him one yet. What if it's Eignar? Because his hope for the future would have a really interesting impact on his relationship with Andrath, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. That I like it. would be really I like interesting, it. right? Um... Yeah. Yeah. Angrod, he also is convinced. But again, his support of Fingolfin is a little bit more tainted by his anger against the Thaenorians. Right? Um, I... I agree because I agree with your premise that it's all the fanorians' fault, right? And, uh, and if they can repent and admit that they've always been wrong, uh, uh, that seems like an excellent first step. And wait, what was the next step after that? I've lost track because that's the one I'm really interested in, right? I mean, there can be an element of that. Um, uh, there can be an element of that there, uh, Yeah. Lincoln says it would also add to Fingolfin's despair when his chief supporter gets curb-stomped by a Balrog in the actual battle. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, The death of Eignor would then look to Fingolfin and the other elves like this certain, like, it would almost be like the embodiment of the failure of the plan, right? It's like, it's like the one who had hope, the one who most firmly believed. Is the first one to die? Um, I like yeah. it. Yeah. Um, now I think that's good. Now Marie says that Hakon wanted uh, Eignor and Angrod uh, to have a conflict with one another throughout the season that could potentially resolve before their deaths. Um, yes. Yes. Um, uh, Rihanna says, Ignor hoping the Valor will come as a direct contradiction of his views in season four. First of all, Ignor had views in season four. I don't remember Ignor having views. When did Ignor have views? How many lines did Ignor get in the last season? Uh, That's my first question. But my second question is, no worries, man. We've got all kinds of opportunities. Ignor has his whole transformational romance with a human woman to, go, to to happen to him, right? That can bring about a lot of changes of mind. It's certainly going to bring about a whole new way of looking at the world from Aignor, from Aignor, right? So even if he did, which I don't remember, and again, I certainly don't think he was real stern in these views because I don't, again, I, he wasn't really, uh, uh, it didn't really, he didn't really impress me with, Uh, character uh, in season four, exactly. But anyhow, um, uh, but it's fine. Even even if so, it's fine. It doesn't matter. We have lots of character development space for Aignor for him to get a new perspective on everything, right? So it's fine. Um, Between his love affair with Andreth and Angrod's uh, de- the death of Angrod's wife, both of them, I mean, it's not hard to understand either one of them coming to a quite different place than he was in, you know, at the beginning of season four. So that I don't think is a problem. Um, uh, okay. Riannon says, we just, we had him, there was a scene in which Finrod was hopeful about the Valar forgiving them and Aignor was not. Okay, sure. That's fine. If he expressed that, excellent. Um, all we have to do is make him eat those words, which is fine. We can do that. Um, and he can have a, he can have an epiphany, right? And and that just makes it more powerful. He can make a speech saying like, you know, my brother, Finrod will remember when I said I didn't believe that it could but you know what now I do now I see it. I didn't see it before, but now I see it. And especially if we can connect that to, um, his, the ways in which his eyes have been opened and he looks at the world differently now, having met Andreth and fallen in love with her. Yeah. Uh, more powerful. I agree. I agree. Um, so, yep, I like it. Um, uh, Florian introduces the possibility that uh, he says, if he's in love enough to grasp at straws. Maybe the Valar can help Andreth to live with him forever after they beat Morgoth. It's not like they've only, they have uh, they they have to know that only Eru can do that and only does it very rarely. What if, yeah, I mean, what if Ignor is hoping for a happily ever after, like a real happily ever after? Not only in the war, but with Andreth. Maybe there is at least a, a little hope to that. Maybe... I don't know. I don't know. Um maybe Angrod could accuse him of that. You know, maybe Angrod basically says, "Dude, I think maybe you're just so gung ho about this because you want to think that everything can suddenly be, can suddenly change." Um yeah. Um yeah. No, I'm not saying that his hopeless love life is his motivation for Finn But again, there's, there's, um, there's an obvious kind of confluence there, right? If he's the voice of hope, I believe that the Valar will come and set things to rights. Even if he's not thinking it, it doesn't have to be his motivation, right? It just has to be kind of on the table, right? As I say, somebody, maybe Finrod, could even say to him, like, uh, are you sure you're, like, being 100% objective about your whole rosy hope for the future thing? Right? Um, and he can deny it, and maybe it's even true. Maybe he can deny it really powerfully. Maybe he can state that he knows things can never work out with him and Andreth. Maybe that's the conversation that he and Finrod have before Finrod has the Athrobeth conversation with Andreth. Um, so that Finrod knows what his brother's thinking, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so what's Angrod doing in season five? Grieving. Despairing. I'm really tempted to say, again, to kind of think about this like both Aignor Ang- uh, and Angrod support Fingolfin but one of them, but they do it in different ways and kind of opposed ways what if Aignor supports him out of hope and Angrod supports him out of despair essentially right? Despair and bitterness I don't want to get oversimplistic with that but um, I mean it's perfectly possible that for him it's as much of a like political thing Right? Like, he so wants to distance himself from what Kurifin, Karanthir, and Kelligorm are saying in Council, that he is like, no way, I'm totally throwing in with Fengulf here. Not because I, in my heart, believe his vision, but because the Feanorians are really against it. <laughs> and it involves the Feanorians repenting. So, um, but- you know, it's... Uh, I can imagine Angrod in the state that he's in going there again. I don't want to. I don't want to make him too simple. I don't want to w- flatten his character in that direction. But I mean, I could see that influencing him. Um, and then he and Ignor would be differing, even though they're both agreeing. They would still, they would not be just partners in lockstep there. Um, did we decide what angrod thinks of andreth i feel like we talked about that but i didn't um i remember saying that i didn't want angrod's response to andreth to be merely snooty right for him just to be like oh what oh how dare she a mortal woman aspire to marry my brother right i don't i don't i don't want that to be angrod's angle didn't we say that he was just yeah, we did. We said that his argument to Ignore was, as a widower, I can tell you, don't sign yourself up to be a widower. Okay? Um, and if you bind yourself to this mortal woman, there is a 100% chance of widowerhood in your future. Right? And let me tell you, from experience, you don't want a piece of this action. Okay? Um, so to to bind yourself to a more... So, man, spare yourself. Don't go there. That's what I recall saying about Angrod's attitude to Andreth. I would rather not do a just kind of cliched... Um, elf standing on their dignity. We're going to get that with Thingol, right? Um, and I don't want it to sound like a cliche when we get to Thingol, right? Um, because anyway, Thingol has more reason for... It, it plays better from Thingol. Right, because this is not just, oh, how dare any mortal presume to fall in love with any elf? Uh, It's Luthien, right? It's not only his personal daughter, right, but also the daughter of Melian and the most beautiful elf woman in all of history, right? I mean, it's this is uh, a mortal setting his eyes on like the highest of all elf connections, right? Um, so that's where we want to lay the, like, who exactly the heck do you think you are uh, to do that? Um, I don't want to play that card with uh, with Angrod. I'm not saying nobody would feel that way, necessarily, about her, but I don't think Aignor's Ang- brothers need be the ones who think that some of the Feanorians, because, I mean, somebody, we could easily have one of the Feanorians, we could, we could easily give Carinthyr a line where he mocks Aignor for his, uh, you know, romance with the, you know, he could talk about, um, you know, uh, keeping a mortal woman as a pet or something. I mean, I mean he could make some kind of really crass comment um, uh, about, you you know, I ignores inappropriate relationship or something and show the kind of scorn, uh, that, uh, uh, that I'm talking about, not wanting Angrod not to have, um, but, um, but yeah, I think that would, that seems to me to, to sort of work. Um, okay. Mike wanted Andreth being mortal, not to be the first reason why Angrod doesn't approve. Okay. But what, what, what is then? What is then? Well, again, I come back to Aignor and Hope. What if it's because he believes that her relationship with Aignor is steering his brother in a destructive direction? Right? What if he believes that I, that Aignor is holding on to a, a a fool's hope because he wants to believe in a fool's hope? Because he's been influenced um, by his relationship with Andreth. I mean, that is another angle there. We were talking about maybe introducing that with Finrod, but I I, I would be happy introducing that with Angrod as well. Um, It's hard because if people don't object to Andreth on the grounds of her being immortal and this whole relationship being a bad idea, then on what grounds do they? Like, he doesn't like her hair color? You know, like, he finds her socially awkward? Like, what would be the grounds uh, exactly if not those? Like, we'd have to have some other grounds, and it would seem a little bit weird. Wouldn't it seem a little bit weird? Um, Especially since... Yeah, that's a good point we're depicting her. I mean, like, what, wouldn't it seem like just a weird sort of nitpick, right? Brother mine, like she's immortal and that seems totally inappropriate. You're really, you're totally different species. You're in a totally different place on planet earth. And yet, fine. I, that's not my problem. My problem is just that she's got a really big nose and it's awkward, you know, and, and oh. I just, yeah, I think you could do better. I do. She eats too loud. Exactly. She opens her mouth when she chews, and it's off-putting. I just, I can't. Like, you know, (laughs) Christmas dinner ruined forever if you bring her around for the, well, not forever. Hey, just for a few decades, right? Am I right or am I wrong?
0: Um, Actually, that's a good point. It, (laughs) It seems doubly weird that they would fixate on something like that because it wouldn't, like, it would elves really even notice something like that? Because... Well, exactly.
1: I mean, it's, yeah, I, I just, um, I, uh, yeah, I don't have, um, I just, I, I can't see a way to make that compelling, to make a, a non, especially since if she were, if there were like serious red flags in her character, right? Like her judgment is bad. If she, I mean, I could see if he were like, look, you're following this mortal woman and she is leading you right over the cliff, right? I could see that, but she's not. She's wise and good and, and and you know, I mean, we have spent, a, we will have spent a lot of effort in the second, like in the third, in the second quarter of the season, right? The second half of the first part, building up the fact that she's this prodigy, right? That she's like practically, that she's like the cream of the mortal crop, right? In her generation. Um, so to have Angrod be like, oh man, that, that lady is bad news, brother mine. Like, I, I don't, um, I don't really, I don't feel it. I don't see it. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, the only other thing I could see is that like, you know, you're, you're king, you know, you have a responsibility to your people, my brother, and How are you... Aren't you kind of abdicating your position with your people if you're binding yourself to this mortal woman? Um, But even that feels like a weak argument, right? Because Eignor's not. He's not marrying her. He's not going to bind himself to her. Um, Elven marriage is unbreakable. Um, In our Morgoth's Ring discussions on Wednesday night, we've been talking about this for months now, uh, looking at the laws and customs among the Eldar. Marriage among the Eldar is a really big deal, Um, and Aignor is, for that reason, not going to go there. He's not going to do that. So, again, what's the complaint? That he needs to hurry up and, like, don't hang out with Andreth and not marry her, because you should be marrying somebody else? But he wouldn't, because it's a time of war anyway. So, Aignor would be like, dude, even if I were not in love with Andreth, I would not be marrying someone else, and Um, By the time I would be marrying someone else, Andreth would be dead anyway. So, I mean, I I just, again, I could be convinced, but I just, I'm not, um, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. Um, but, um, yeah, um, Michael's saying this mortal woman who led her people away from living with elves. <coughs> sure. I mean, I guess we could construct a plot line in which Angrod misconstrues Andreth, right? Uh, into thinking that she's anti-elf. Um, and that, but that involves a lot of... Angrod has to really misunderstand Andreth pretty significantly to get that, I think. Um, and, I don't know. Yeah. Um, again, we could go there, but I, I don't know, it would feel like lowering his character even further, essentially. Um, yeah. Plus, Florian, I feel the same way. Like, her mortality, it really I mean, if there's other reasons, the mortality thing just kind of becomes the elephant in the room, right? Can we get back to the fact that you're a different species, right? Can we just, can we deal with that first and then talk about the potential political ramifications or personality clashes long-term? Uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like if, if um, you know, if my brother told me that he wanted to marry like a gerbil um i would probably not be leading with you know but are the two of you really compatible like do you do you, do you get along well you know like is is this gerbil a good influence on you you know like it's I, <laughs> i'm not saying those wouldn't be factors if i thought that there was something alarming uh about the personality of this particular gerbil but seriously that's that would probably not be the premise of my um, cautions, you know, to my brother on this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, besides which, as I say, I don't really want Angrod to be diehard opposed. I really don't. Um, I don't want this to get all Montague and Capulet here. Um, I don't want Angrod to be Andreth's enemy. I don't think she needs any enemies. Um, and, and, and here's here's another reason why. L- let me explain more why I don't want that. Or why I think it would be bad. It might seem like more conflict is better, right? Um, more tension is better. But I don't think so. And here's why I don't think so. One of the cool things about this season is that a lot of the drama of this season is essentially, like, philosophical, right? It's... Um, it's not just about personalities. It's not just about, it's not about action. It's certainly not about action and it's not even about personalities uh, or politics. It's about understanding worldviews. Right. Um, and that's really cool. That's really interesting. Again, I'm going back to the athrobeth here, right? The athrobeth is in my mind, the core of the whole season ultimately. Like it's the it should I think that the Athrobeth discussion between Finrod and Andreth should really be the heart of the whole season. Um, if there's one episode that kind of encapsulates season five, it should be the Athrobeth episode or the Athrobeth material. If we extend it beyond one single episode, um, that I think is really interesting. We, politics we get lots of chance to do politics. We get lots of chance to do conflicting personalities, but this is really interesting. And if we have Um, I want to, so I want to keep the focus. I want to keep the tension being on, but elf and human, elf and human, right? This is the, how do we sort, what does this even mean? Is this possible? Like, maybe it is possible and we don't know. Maybe this is a bigger deal, a worse deal than we think it is. And them trying to figure this out and, and Andreth's bitterness. Andreth is bitter about Ignor's leaving her, right? His refusal his requited love but refusal to enter into marriage with her. Um she's bitter about this. But if her bitterness is merely personal, if she if if middle aged Andreth is sitting there fuming saying, oh his stupid brother didn't come between us, then things might have worked out. That totally undermines the bigger point, right? And undermines what we can get from like the payoff that we can get from the conversation with Finrod and their Increased mutual understanding about the elf in human situations. Um Yeah. So that's where I want to keep the emphasis. Um Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Um with that, we've talked about Eignor and Angrod as well. So I think we're I think we're I think we're actually kinda pretty much Yes, we did them all. We talked about all the things, almost all the things. We didn't do Rogram and *Anile*, but come on, that's pretty close. Okay, um, next time. So we're 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 back on our schedule now. So two weeks from tonight, August thirteenth, Thursday, August thirteenth, at ten p.m. Eastern time, that'll be our next scheduled session. Um, in that session, we're gonna be focused on. We're gonna continue *Elf* stories, right? Um, I think we're gonna be able to get around to. There's some other things that we. Haven't talked We're a bunch of elf stories we haven't gotten to yet. I think it's going to be time to sit down with the Arthel and Ale story next time. We talked about the one love relation, the one uh, unhappy love situation in season five. We need to talk about the other unhappy love situation in season five. Um, so we'll definitely talk about Arthel and Aol next time, and we'll see if we can bring in some of those, like, miscellaneous elves, right? Not that they're minor in themselves, but whose roles in season five are gonna be minor. Like, as we mentioned before, Galadriel, Thingol, Círdan, um, some of the minor, the legitimately minor characters like Rolgren and, and Anil, um uh, anybody else that we've sort of omitted uh, here uh, as we go through? And so we'll tr- uh, we'll see if we can't maybe wrap up uh, the elf storylines uh, next time. Um, after that, I can think of two things that we will still want to do after we finish the elf storylines. One the most obvious, I think, is that we need to talk about the the villain storylines, right? We need to uh, think more about, we've already talked some about some of the things we'd like to see happening in Angband in this season. We need to flesh that out a little bit more. And uh, we kind of have talked about where the Angband story is going to end, right, at the very end with uh, the duel with Fingolfin. Um, But we need to think about earlier on um, how how we're going to build up to that. Um, And... Uh, I do want to consider, yes, uh, Maria's reminding me about dwarves. We'd mentioned the possibility of doing a kind of, you know, D plot <laughs> of, uh, of dwarf stories uh, in this uh, season. Do we want to pursue that? And if so, how, and how would we connect it to the other things that are going on? That's a good question. There's one other thing that I would, uh, that I would say that we need to do, and I'm kind of thinking maybe we do this last. Or maybe we do it after we finish talking about elves before we shift to talking about villains and dwarves. Um, but I was just talking just now, and I've been mentioning over the last few episodes, how important the worldview question is going to be, right? The, the whole difference in worldview between humans and elves, and that one of the primary dramas of the season is going to be the two of the, those two things coming into conflict and mutual understanding growing. And once again, the Athrobeth conversation between Finrod and Andreth is, is sort of the heart of that kind of coming together. Um, though, of course, it's not the resolution of all of those issues by any stretch, but it's really, it's like the, the turning point and kind of the revelations there. So, um, I would like to do some brainstorming about that. We, we need to actually think that through, I think, a little bit more. I've been waving my hands vaguely at the issue of like, so those ways in which elves and men look at the world differently. Um, I'd like to think those through. I'd like to make a list of what are some of the elf human issues that we want to bring up and how can we integrate them into our larger theme of change and into some of these other specific storylines that we've been developing with the humans uh, and with the elves Uh, especially because I think we need to be deliberate about that so that we can be planning for that when we start going episode by episode through and anticipating some of these specific topics. I think it'll really influence the way that we do our plot lines. So I want to actually have a, you know, elf versus human worldview. What are the issues and how do they relate to the other plot lines, uh, discussion. I, th- I think it probably makes best sense to do that after we finish talking about all the elves, and then before we shift on to talking about other things like the dwarves and the villains. Okay. So that's a glance ahead at the fun to come in Silm Film Season 5. Um, so, uh, again, two weeks. If it's like this week, you won't want to miss it. Absolutely, <laughs> boy! This what a revelation this was. I mean, that was a transformational idea, uh, which is um, pretty wild. Uh, and uh, won't Nick be surprised when he comes back? in because he wasn't here. So long. <laughs> I think that was. Uh, I think he's gonna just love the fact that he missed that suggestion um but uh (laughs) anyway um okay so thanks everybody for joining us and we will see you guys in two weeks uh for the next step in our discussion so thanks for listening and godspeed